so I am Kevin Zakharoff. Uh, just a brief bit about me. This is uh, the twelfth year of Pain Week. This is my twelfth year of speaking at Pain Week. Uh, I typically hate standing here at the podium, but in a room like this, I have no choice because if I walk up and down the aisle, I'm going to prevent this half of the room from seeing my slides. So forgive me for standing up here, and I'll try to be as animated as I possibly can uh, to keep you engaged. Uh, I am an anesthesiologist and pain medicine physician. Uh, what I do now uh, is almost entirely teach. I teach at the Stony Brook Medical School in Stony Brook, New York. Uh, I teach medical ethics there. I'll be doing a talk tomorrow on pain, drugs, and ethics. Uh, I also teach an elective on pain, and I'm working on a full-fledged, mandatory fourth-year medical student, half-year uh, half course on pain that will be released in Stony Brook next year, finally. Finally. Uh, I also, just as a side note, um, my mission in life is two things, really. One, to teach people who are not experts about the things that experts talk about in pain. And two, to be an advocate for patients more than anything else. And that's how I got here today. So if you find this talk a little preachy, uh, forgive me. But as I mentioned in my earlier talk, I was feeling a little preachy. Um, when I created this slide set, but I feel that if there was one thing I didn't think got enough attention uh, at meetings like this, it's the, the voice of the patient and what, what patients actually go through. So I have nothing to disclose. The learning objectives will become uh, self-evident. And I guess what I really thought I would want us to do here today was to make sure and reaffirm that what we are really trying to focus on when we see patients, regardless of whatever discipline we're involved with, uh, whether we're physicians or social workers or dentists or NPs or PAs or just about any other thing you can think of, is, is the patient's path our main focus? Uh, or are we just really focusing on the clinical trajectory? Is that all we're really doing when we meet that patient for the first time, register the chief complaint, and we automatically plot out what the course of that patient's going to be based on what we're suffering, they're suffering from. Now, pain treatments are not new. Um, there was an interesting article I found entitled How, Opi How Advertising Shaped the First Opioid Epidemic. This is from the Smithsonian. And uh, solutions for pain are not something that's new to healthcare providers or patients. Uh, obviously, when pain became the fifth vital sign, it was a game changer in terms of how we fed pain into the, almost every clinical discussion you can imagine. But for years, uh, people have been looking for the perfect solution, including Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. It's not clear to me in this picture who took the soothing syrup. Um, <laughs> But somebody did. Uh, there have been many solutions over the years. Heroin was a solution. There was a point in time where heroin was a solution. There was a point in time where methadone was a solution. And these were readily advertised in medical journals. Now, if we're going to think about patients who suffer from chronic pain, we obviously can't ignore 
what the current climate is. And I gave a talk earlier today about opioid crisis and heroin and fentanyl. And, you know, the likelihood is there is no way you have gotten to this meeting even without knowing that the current climate is directed towards decreased opioid prescribing, increased regulatory scrutiny, people who often hang up signs saying, I'm not going to prescribe opioids, and people who think like this. David Courtright, a historian of drug use and policy at the University of North Florida. And I'm not a big fan of reading slides, but I think this one deserves to be read. Addiction is a highway with a lot of on-ramps, and prescription opioids are one of them. If we remove the billboards advertising at the exit, maybe we can reduce, if not eliminate, the number of travelers. That's the way people are thinking. That's why the Drug Enforcement Administration is decreasing the amount of opioids that can be produced every year. That's why states are implementing dose-limiting strategies and dose ceilings, because people think like this. I think we need to think about what happens to people when they, they're told that their pain is likely to be a chronic situation they're going to have to deal with for the long-term future or possibly even the rest of their lives. And I think we need to think about what would our response be to being told that. So you're diagnosed with chronic pain. You're told that the healing has taken place. You don't understand why the pain's not going away, but this is likely something you're going to have to deal with in the future. What are the responses? Well, they're not that different from what Kubler-Ross wrote. Denial this is not me. This is not the life I lead. This is not who I am. I thought this was going to get better. Anger, right? I don't know if most of us can think of a, a chronic pain patient who doesn't have some anxiety and anger about the fact that they've been told that this is just the way life is going to be. Every single person in my family, when they come to me about a medical problem, want me to pin the tail on the donkey. They want to know what's the cause, how did this happen, what's the solution. And once they find out how to pin the tail on the donkey, then they want to look for a way to blame somebody or something for why it is. Bargaining and fear is a part of the process when patients are diagnosed with chronic pain, right? They question decisions, and then they get on what's called, what I call the carousel. Go see health care provider A, go see health care provider B, C, D, E, F, G, until I find the right one who's going to solve a problem for me. I used to run the migraine headache clinic for the American Headache Society in New York City. And patients would come who suffered from migraines, for chronic headaches, for years and years and years. And I could tell you the number of healthcare providers that they saw in a two or three year period boggled my mind. Some would come in having seen 15 or 20 different healthcare providers in a three year period. Depression and grief, we know that's a common part of the puzzle with patients who suffer from chronic pain or at least told that their pain is going to be chronic. And they develop a sense of hopelessness, right? I mean, it's a pretty hopeless situation. If we define chronic pain as pain that lasts for three months or longer, 
And in every one of my talks where I mention chronic pain, I talk about the fact that you need to always be careful to let patients know that there's not going to be likely a cure. That's a very difficult thing to hear from somebody. And then maybe there's going to be some kind of acceptance on the patient level when the diagnosis is made. Coming to realization about the fact that there's no cure. But way deeper down in those Kubler-Ross principles, I would posit to you that these things happen. Right? Look at all the words on this, in this square. Stigma's right in the center, right? Patients, when they're told they have chronic pain, start to feel they have to prove to you that their pain is so bad. And they have to prove to you that it really hurts. Maybe it's to get medications. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's to defend the fact that they can't do the kinds of things they used to do. But we all know that when we hear that noise or our car suffers that problem, when we go to the mechanic, we hope that when they take it for a test drive, they're going to hear what we hear. Or that's going to, it's going to ex- experience that problem that we have. Because I promise, the whole ride here, when I pressed the gas pedal, there was hesitation. I don't feel it now. Patients feel the need to prove. And they also feel stigmatized. Part of the reason they feel stigmatized is because they're getting on that highway with those off-ramps, with those billboards, and people are thinking, you're going to be prescribed an opioid? Now I'm going to be on an opioid. I'm not going to tell anybody I'm on an opioid. Because the minute I tell them I'm on an opioid, they're going to to judge me. They're also going to have physical limitations that could potentially stigmatize them. And they're also going to have social limitations. And you name it, and these kinds of things go through people's minds. And they're going to be stigmatized not only whether or not they're placed on opioids, but they're going to be stigmatized because they just say they're not feeling up to doing what they're doing. They're going to feel pity. People are going to pity them. They're going to feel pity for themselves. And people are going to give them sympathy, but very rarely, including from us, might they get empathy. And sympathy is not the same thing as empathy. And of course, we're going to be thinking in the back of our minds because we just attended pain week. Do I need to be thinking about this person malingering? Are they drug seeking? If I had a dollar for every person who tells me, I just assume that all patients are drug seeking. And that makes it simple. So I don't have to think about it. I'd have a lot more dollars. And they feel lonely. This is all sad stuff. This is sad stuff to feel, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that the likelihood is that we would go through all of these different feelings and emotions in the course of being told this or any other tragic diagnosis. And I consider chronic pain to be a tragic diagnosis. So what is the patient's path to infirmity? Is it something we normally consider, and can we possibly prevent it? Well, in the 12 years I've been speaking at Pain Week, uh, I have been trying to focus my talks on a certain target. And I have been hoping that the people who come to my sessions are going to put into practice the teachings that I give. Assessment, history, physical, diagnostic studies, risk of aberrant behavior, getting to a differential diagnosis, 
presumptive diagnosis, definitive diagnosis, formulating a treatment plan, implementing that treatment plan, reevaluating the plan over time. That all makes sense, but that's the clinical trajectory. That has nothing to do with the patient's path. It has nothing to do with the individuality that patients experience, the context of their lives, or anything else that we do. So do you need to do all those things? Absolutely you do. But if you're not digging deeper, then you may not be necessarily helping the patient deal with that path to infirmity or preventing that path to infirmity as much as you possibly can. We got all those boxes checked, I think. But what do patients with chronic pain really need? So two summers ago, I went to the Woodstock Festival Museum in Bethel Woods, New York. And uh, I was blown away. I was really too young in 1969 uh, to have gone, but I really knew a lot about Woodstock. What I didn't know is that there was going to be an art exhibit that was there by a photographer who used to photograph for a magazine that was very popular back in those days called Life Magazine. And his name was Villet. And this was one of the pictures he took. And it made me feel nostalgic because it, it made me think about and want to show this picture to my medical students because my medical students are not taught to get into patient spaces anymore. And you should look at this picture and think about how often do you typically get that close to a patient to talk to them. I remember those days. I remember the days where giving to a patient involved whatever this doctor was giving to that patient who just got bad news. You know, I... We talk about, uh, you know, palpating the abdomen and using percussion and, and those, those kinds of things. And we talk about in our ethics class with medical students, touching patients and what those kinds of things can be. And obviously there are issues that exist today that make people think twice and having witnesses in the room or not. But the bottom line is what this picture tells me is this picture tells me something that the doctor is giving the person that is not given through a prescription, and it may not even be given through words. This is empathy happening right here in this picture as far as I'm concerned. So I took a picture of the picture and I included it in my slide. And he also took this picture. I don't know if you've ever had a patient who said this is really wearing me down. But when I think of a patient being worn down, this is the image of a worn down patient I have. A person who really feels that they're at the end of their rope and they really have just can't go through anymore. And nothing makes me more angry when I open up the medical journals with the advertisements for new pain medications and I see a fellow trying to tie his shoe. Like the drug is supposed to make it like, okay, you'll be able to tie your shoe if you take this medication. This is what I'm trying to take care of when I'm thinking about prescribing a pain, a pain medication. Not tying your shoe. How to make this person not look like this. This is a real patient. 
So what happens to patients? Well, they get fear and anxiety. And if you tune out now because it's the end of the day, I promise you that in my mind, the fear of not knowing is probably the worst fear and the worst symptom a chronic pain patient could possibly have. And that stokes the anxiety. Because nothing sounds worse than hearing, I don't really know if we're ever going to be able to get you better. You may have to make adjustments in the way you live. This is just the way it is. The fear of not knowing, I think, is one of the biggest symptoms of, of being diagnosed with chronic pain. And what it would make me think about is, is the discussion, in addition to the H&P, going to include questions like, what is it that really scares you about this? Or are there things about this that really scare you? And suffering, right? Everybody has a different definition of suffering. Lawyers definitely have a different definition of suffering. Uh, But suffering is a difficult part of this. And we walk into the situation with biases already implanted in our brains about painful sensations and chief complaints related to pain, right? Pain rating. Pain is the fifth vital sign, or just pain on a scale of 0 to 10. But we also need to realize that there are neurophysiologic processes that are happening, and there are neuropsychological processes that are happening in patients who are just told that they have chronic pain that are going to impact how well they mitigate the forces of painful sensations. Culture makes a big difference. I got a grant from the NIH to study cultural differences in patients with chronic pain. And what we found was, we looked at Hispanic pain patients, we found that men tended to be much more stoic about their pain, and women tended to be much more vocal about it. Culture can impact a patient's path. And it's up to us to at least know what the cultural backgrounds of the patients are. I was shocked. It wasn't until I was teaching in medical school that in China it was very common practice to not tell elderly patients that they had a terminal illness. And everybody was okay with that. And I'm like Mr. Autonomy here. Individual character can shape what the patient's path is and what their emotional state is. These are all things in my mind that fall outside of the normal history and physical, in addition to life and other aspects of it. Somebody who's worried about their limitations from a functional perspective may have a a child that's going to be getting married soon. Maybe they were supposed to get a job promotion like three weeks from now. I think if you take a look at any single slide that I presented this meeting, this is probably the most important one because this truly sums up in my mind what patients go through regarding the negotiation of chronic pain and suffering. There's physical and mental forces pulling on it. There's neuronal states pulling on it, mental states pulling on it, differences in sensation, perception, emotion, cognition, external factors that if we don't know about, we can't positively, possibly factor in that determine how well chronic pain and suffering is going to be negotiated. Take a look at this when you get a chance. It's really meaningful, and it's one of those pictures, tells a thousand words kind of situations. 
you think about your own personal experiences, your unknown, and how they affected you, and you will come to the conclusion, along with me, that fear is a prison. People who have injury or surgery, they get acute pain, they get persistent pain, they recover, they plug a certain chronology into it. Everybody wants to know, how long am I going to be out of commission? Predict for me what this is going to be. If you predict no end in sight and a long period of time or for the foreseeable future or the rest of your life with a certain type of pain, it can make you look like that woman in the photo. Impact. People worry about what is it going to do? How is it going to affect my achievement goals? Is it going to incapacitate me? Is my disability going to be short-term, long-term? What is short-term and long-term? These are all individual aspects of patients' lives that we may not capture as part of a history and physical. I, at the medical school, last year participated in a simulation. Uh, you know, med schools have simulation centers now. And we expose pa uh, students to standardized patients, et cetera, et cetera. I played a physician my age who was starting to develop dementia. <laughs> and... Um, the physician prescribed an opioid for somebody who was a heavy equipment operator. And the employer picked up, this is all fictitious, right? Not me. Uh, the employer picked up on the routine urine tox screen that there were opioids in, in the urine. And the guy almost lost his job. And it was because I forgot to ask him what he did for a living. What religion somebody is? what their emotional state is, what their cultural differences are, what are their belief systems regarding these things, all impact people on a physiologic level. There are physiologic consequences of pain, fear, and anxiety, and they affect the pain response modulations. And believe it or not, some of them are very well treated pharmacologically. Some of them are very well treated non-pharmacologically. There are these things called top-down sensitizers, such as qualities of hypervigilance. I'm doing everything you say, patient saying to the healthcare provider, but catastrophizing, becoming depressed, not coping well, uh, developing anxiety, stress. These are all things that could be considered top-down what's called top-down sensitizers. And there's this constant tug of war going on between modulating inhibition and facilitation. I never really experienced this until one day I had a 27-year-old patient who was coming for their third or fourth spine surgery. And I went to put the EKG leads on the patient, and the patient almost jumped off the table. And it immediately made me think that this patient was a wackadoo. Actually, it was probably the temperature of the EKG pad gel. And she was hyper, in a hyper-stimulatable state. And I stimulated her. Then there were bottom-up sensitizers as well. So infirmity. So when I'm developing this slide set, I decided to look up what the definition of infirmity is. And here's what I found. Infirmity 
which feeds our precognitive thinking about it, is a body ailment or, or weakness, especially brought about by old age. It could be a condition or disease producing weakness. It could be a failing or a defect in a person's character. And if we're honest with ourselves, we need to think about that. Do we sometimes think that some people are going to go down a certain path because of failings in their character or the type of person that they are? I'd say that the answer is probably yes. I normally would say we take the, the motivation temperature and we see what the amount of vitamin M they have, how motivated they're going to be. But the reality of it is, is we may all automatically preclude that they're likely to be of the negative character and say to ourselves, well, this patient's not going to do well. Adjectives used to describe infirmity are frail, faintness, feeble, defective, weak. None of us would really ever want to be labeled with any of those adjectives, right? Now, from a clinician perspective, looking at our biases, we look at things in terms of, am I going to be able to ameliorate the symptoms of this chronic pain, or am I going to be able to cure them? The likelihood is ameliorization is what I'm going to have. Amelioration is what I'm going to have to look for. Am I going to be able to resolve it or improve it? Am I going to be able to reduce it or eradicate it? Am I going to use medications to do it, or do I need to use a multidisciplinary approach to treat it? We always think about safety and efficacy about every treatment we choose and everything else down the line. These are the kinds of things that we walk into and immediately process in seconds as soon as we think we know what's really going on. From the patient's perspective, their precognitive biases are, am I going to be able to tie my shoe again? I don't think so. Their precognitive biases are much more like these photographs, not like that. Cure versus failure is what they think about. Are you going to be able to cure me or are you going to not be able to cure me and you're going to fail? Are you going to provide relief for me or is it going to be a failure? This is why people jump on that carousel, right? I went to Dr. X, nurse practitioner Y, psychologist C. None of them can help me, so I went to see somebody else. Am I going to have no pain, or is there going to be failure? Is there going to be treatment success, or is there going to be failure? And they're going to say, I need to go see someone else because they're feeling frustrated about the clinician's failure. So that, what I would really like to try and get across to you today are some core competencies that fall outside the box of all of the things I think need to be done in order to do a good, solid pain assessment, formulation of treatment plan, and implementation of a treatment plan. And they're going to include things like employing paradigms in your treatment plan and even in your approach to patients that use descriptors like trust and openness, paying careful attention to patient narratives. We're teaching medical students now 
that maybe what they need to do is think more about the narrative and think less about going through the check the box of the H and P so they could really get to the bottom of what's going on. And not to not include it in the medical record because it has to be there, but to make sure that it's not lost sight of. Every patient narrative is going to be different. And the use of informed ethical planning of diagnostic and possible therapeutic interventions based on scientific evidence, based on patient individual level consideration, because the same condition does not in any way, shape, or form mean the same impact. We've all seen patients who say, I have pain out of 8 of 10 on a daily basis. I can't come to office hours until after work. And then we've seen patients who say, my pain's a 4 out of 10, and I can't get off the sofa to come to your office. Patient context. So to me, these outside-the-box kinds of things are trust, openness, narratives, context, and logistics. Somebody was telling me about a patient that got fired from a practice because they missed three appointments at a pain clinic. And a pain clinic is a very precious appointment to get. In Stony Brook, where I teach, it's a 12-week wait if you're a new patient. turned out that the patient was having trouble making the connections in the public transportation, and that's why they kept missing the appointments. When appointments are scheduled is an important thing. Something as small as when do you think you could reliably be here is an important question to ask. Knowing what, form, what medications are on what formulary is a daunting task. It takes a lot of time. It's a time suck. But looking at it from the patient's perspective, who would want to get a medication prescribed for them? Have the person go to the pharmacy to pick it up and be told, your insurance company hasn't approved this medication yet. Interpersonal and communication skills. Across all levels, patients, family members, caregivers, and other health care providers. I did a series of talks for the Department of Health in Florida, and it was me, law enforcement officials, and substance abuse treatment counselors. And uniformly, the thing that came across most loudly and clearly is that none of the people there, meaning me or the other two speakers, felt that there was a high level of communication among them about what's really going on in the real world. It's almost like the law enforcement officials were thirsty to tell me what they were seeing. And the substance abuse treatment professionals were saying, I just wish I could get the healthcare provider to touch base with me about where I think this patient is. And then I wrote, foster meaningful realism. Meaningful realism is managing goals, expectations, and outcomes, but it really has to do with fostering motivation and motivation fostering meaningful realism based on the patient's individual capabilities. And then following through with referrals, consults, and referrals of care. None of this is easy, but the patients deserve it. Collaborating with other healthcare professionals and evaluation way beyond the HMP to the point that it's doable 
includes psychological, social, behavioral, and most importantly, functional. And we know in the back of our minds what is likely going to reproduce the best outcome. But we also need to keep in mind that what we expect may not actually be what happens. So if we expect the patient's going to get better and they don't get better, we can't use our preconceived uh, thinking and say, well, the patient's actually failed me. And modifying the treatment plan based on those actual outcomes, not whether or not the person fell on the bell curve, just what actually happened to them. And developing a care plan that incorporates more than just pharmacology and procedures. Taking into account what's the likelihood that this patient is going to lose the 35 pounds they need to lose for the pain they're suffering in their knee. What's the likelihood they're going to adhere to that? We used to do a case uh, here years ago where we had an automobile mechanic who was told for his back to get to the gym at least three times a week, and he was the owner of the business, and he said, I'm just not going to be able to do it. Well, if he's not going to be able to do it, or she's not going to be able to do it, then it's not going to make sense for that individual patient to be part of the treatment plan. That's realism. Integrative participation from other healthcare providers and interprofessional communication is likely to become bigger. We are watching, thankfully, pharmacists' roles increase more and more as time goes by, but there are other healthcare professionals that could play a greater role and participate as well. And we're seeing a lot written now about the fact that opioids are no longer the go-to drug in many situations for complementary treatments. We just need to make sure that the, realistically they're going to happen, otherwise they're meaningless. And then what the individual needs of the resources of the patient's social circumstances are. If you tell somebody to get exercise and to get to the gym, but they don't have a way to get to the gym, they're not getting to the gym, right? what the community settings are, what their access and logistics are, what the, treatments, uh, what the treatments are in terms of reality for them, and where they are financially. Are they going to be able to pay for this if insurance doesn't cover it? Probe for those pain-related behaviors that are not going to be discovered through the normal history and physical, things they're not able to do, what they're scared of, what they're not doing, are they magnifying symptoms? Are there times when they feel their symptoms are acting better and, or not? And what are the situations where that's happening? Are they catastrophizing? Are they minimizing? Either one is going to have an impact one way or the other on what happens to them and should have an impact on what you do. Are they always sleepy? Are they always tired? Are they always irritable? These things should be probed for and incorporated into the pain treatment plan. Now, professionalism is a given. I know in my heart of hearts that everybody who comes to this meeting has a level of professionalism. I don't know that everybody has a, a high level of com compassion. I don't know that everybody has a high level of collegial interactions with others about best practices and new information, but I will tell you this. I will tell you that the community in which you practice and the area in which you practice and what other people are doing in your practice should be dictating what you do in your practice. 
I went to a talk given by Dr. Hardin on ketamine this morning, and a lot of people in the audience, a lot of uh, meeting attendees, shared experiences about ways that they're using ketamine to manage people with pain. Some people are aerosolizing it and spraying it on people's wounds and all kinds of different things. Things that are happening in your community could potentially contribute to what you do. Sensitivity, you know, we, we talk about with my medical students, is professionalism something you can teach people? And I presume, as I said, we're all professional. I don't know that we're all sensitive. But I think we need to be sensitive as part of our fact-finding mission to those things I've already mentioned. Culture, religion, ethnicity, capability, privacy, level of education. What if the person doesn't want their significant other or somebody else in their household to know that they're going to be going on an opioid and you tell the person that if there's somebody else in the household who's likely to abuse or misuse these medications, that could be very problematic. How do you navigate that water? It can get pretty complicated. Things to take into consideration. And to reflect on our experiences, our own experiences, especially the ones where we got burned by patients, and let them not help us prejudge patients, but let us figure out how to identify which time a patient falls into a certain category and implement the things that we think might be best for them. And more than anything else, realizing where your limitations begin and end. Uh, I bring up at, at least once a meeting the idea about prescribing benzodiazepines along with opioids. And I talk about the fact that sitting on the FDA advisory committee, as I do for anesthetic and analgesic drugs, I can tell you with a high level of certainty that no regulatory agency wants the same clinician to co-prescribe benzos and opioids, period. And if you do, you better document it really well. And states may tag you and look at you. Just know that that's coming. But knowing the limitations of your practice, people ask questions about marijuana. We're going to talk about medical marijuana a bit in the keynote address. Knowing the limitations of your practice and where they begin and end is very important to your practice health. So reflecting on that is an important part of professionalism as far as I'm concerned. And I'll be talking about ethics tomorrow, but the bottom line is, just in case you can't make the talk, Regardless of which guidelines you think about, regardless of what opinions you hear at this meeting, regardless of what you read in the paper or read in the medical journals or whatever, there have to be reproducible things that you draw upon every single time you see a patient and every single time you develop a treatment plan. And you have to figure out for yourself which is the most important ethical reproducible principle to employ. I happen to choose autonomy. What the patient or their proxy decides is what I'm going to do 100% of the time. You also have to have a measure of justice and know that the patient or their proxy has a right to decide. And you must, you must consider non-maleficence as part of what you do. And that means that somebody with a history of substance abuse or somebody who you think smells like they're a high risk, 
You don't put them at increased risk because that could do them harm. It could do you harm too, but you don't want to do them harm. You want to think about benefiting them. What is going to benefit them the most? And I promise you that if in your notes you create some kind of narrative in your note that takes these things into account, that your notes will hold up to muster way better than if you used a certain opioid risk assessment tool. Because this is something reproducible. Empathy is something I'm always trying to debunk for people. Um, In that picture that I showed you that I saw up in Woodstock of the doctor, what many people consider invading the patient's personal space, although I just consider it to be good doctoring, I think he was just listening to the patient. That's empathy. Giving unasked for advice about how to deal with the issues, that's empathy. It's way different than putting yourself inside their shoes. Trying to imagine yourself in their place in order to understand what they're feeling and experiencing is really what I'm talking about. Some things often go under our radar, so you must probe for them. So here's a fact or fiction kind of thing. Think about to yourselves whether you think these statements are true or not. Maladaptive thinking can interfere with efficacy and safety. What do you think, true or false? True. My pain's a 12 out of 10, right? We've all heard that. As soon as we hear that, again, being honest with ourselves, we classify a patient, right? They want to go out of their way to make me know that it's way worse than my scale is affording them to tell me. True or false, if there's pain, there's damage. Not true, right? False. If there's pain, activity should be avoided. Used used to think that way, but it's false, right? If there's pain, there will be disability. False. Once it becomes chronic, there will be no control. I guess it depends on how you define control, right? As long as you don't use the cure word, you're good. Pain is permanent? False or true? It depends. Leading to increased perception of pain, deconditioning, depression, and increased stress. So how these questions get answered and how some of the questions we ask are answered could potentially affect the way and the path that patients take. Interference with activities of daily living is something that we always think about when we're measuring functional capacity, but it has very little to do with a pain rating on a scale of 0 to 10. And I didn't realize this until I developed this presentation, but there is a reasonable body of literature of patient statements about what they thought about their health care providers and how they were being treated for their pain. And look at the title of this article. It struck me they didn't understand pain, the specialist pain clinic experience of patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain. They said they felt like they had a spoiled identity. In just about a half an hour, we're going to be talking about mistaken identities. They linked their ability to do the things that made them who they were to their identity, and something that was going to change their ability to do that spoiled their identity for them. They 
definitely lost faith in healthcare, leading to frustration and jumping on the carousel I was talking about earlier. And they also told surveyors in this study that was done that they just wanted to try to make sense of the pain. And that, to me, sort of leads back to the pin the tail on the donkey kind of thing. And then, you know, a a definite difficulty in this new life or secret life that they're going to lead or this spoiled identity is, is this ever going to stop or is this just my new normal? New normal is a tough thing to have to live with. So in the United Kingdom, they did an analysis of 245 patients with chronic pain surveyed in a specialty pain clinic. Their ages were 23 to 86, and the duration of pain ranged between six months and 57 years. Living with chronic pain from the patient's perspective, there's a graphic that's going to appear in a second when I press the button. What do you think it is? That's what they wanted. They wanted somebody to pin the tail on the donkey for them. This is not something we spent a lot of time talking about at this conference, but this is not something that excludes teenagers and adolescents. And I happen to have, I'm at the FAAP after my name. I'm a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm a, a pediatric anesthesiologist by training. It's very important to me what we need to realize is that the triggers may or may not be unique in this patient population, and they may have nothing to do with triggers that we see in adults. It could be interactions with other kids. It could be ability or inability to go to school. The, the, the book, The uh, Child in Pain, written by Leora Kuttner, she is a good friend of mine, a good acquaintance. I'll never forget something she told me. She said that for kids, school is their work. And if they can't go to school, they can't go to work. And that makes them feel a certain way. And obviously, they have different ways of communicating with us. We need to take that into consideration. So to sum up, in my mind... Fear is just another fork in the road for patients with chronic pain. They could have an injury. They could experience pain. They could experience no fear. They could go on to confront, and they could go on to recover. They could experience pain. They could experience fear. They could catastrophize, leading to more fear, leading to avoidance, and then lead to disuse, depression, and disability. That's the fork. So be on the lookout for spoiled identities and things that might fuel it. Be on the lookout for family impact, how the pain affects everybody in the household. Whether or not patients are feeling demoralized. Are they complainers? And if they are complainers, which there will be, What could possibly be causing their constant complaining? And what their coping skills are. These are things that are not likely to be determined through a standard history and physical. But I promise you this, and you'll nod when I say this. The words are already up there. Nothing beats being believed. 
Nothing makes me feel better than when my mechanic says to me, I heard the noise in your car. (laughs) So avoid a tunnel vision approach. Realize that it takes so much more outside of our normal approach to do what we can to individualize care. And consider other things that we might not normally consider that could potentially impact goals and expectations of treatment. We may not be able to prevent the path to infirmity, but we can walk alongside our patients down that road. And in the absence of cure, that might be what they really need. Thank you very much.